views expressed on this program are those of the hosts, guests, and callers, and are not necessarily those of this station, its management, or other advertisers. You're listening to Transformation Talk Radio. Are you ready to stop stress, anxiety, and low self-esteem from running your life? Join award-winning author Dr. Friedemann Schaub from Empowerment Radio as he addresses some of the most prevailing challenges in our day-to-day lives. Find out how you can use the power of your mind to overcome self-sabotaging patterns and build a solid foundation of confidence and self-respect. Learn cutting-edge tools and approach every day with great ease, joy, and purpose. This is the time to empower yourself. Now, here's your host, Dr. Friedemann Schaub. Welcome to Empowerment Radio. Uh, well, I'm actually a little speechless because, uh, well, many reasons, but one of the reasons is my fabulous guest who wrote a book that, uh, yeah, blew my mind and I'm sure will also blow yours if uh, you just listen to our conversation, which we're going to have in a moment. But before we go there, another thing that I find really so exciting already about this year, which is very young, is that so much is changing. So much is shifting. And two things that I want to tell you about that I'm really thrilled about are things that are directly affecting Empowerment Radio and also my work. Empowerment Radio will change its spot from Wednesday to Thursday. And it's starting in March. And we will shift from the 11 Pacific Standard Time to a 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time or noon Eastern Standard Time. So every first and third Thursday. Mark it in your calendar starting in March. I will be on Empowerment Radio. And a lot of people told me they are excited about it because they have better time. Either it's a lunch break or they just uh, send people off or they just have more time on their way to work and their commune. Whatever it is, I will hopefully be able to share even with more people worldwide uh, great information amongst those. Also the information we're going to listen to today from our great guest. And the other thing is I introduced already before, but it's worth mentioning, I just started the 50 Ways to Self-Empowerment series on social media. So this is Facebook, Twitter, and also Instagram. Join me on those outlets and just you know get every week some insights some uh, little mind bends, but also concrete tools and exercises to do to make this year the year of self-empowerment. And keep in mind, self-empowerment is not about being in control at all times of all the people and all the circumstances you're in, but self-empowerment is really about being able to stay committed to your personal growth, to be able to be flexible and adjust to whatever situations you're in without losing yourself within it so that you are becoming more and more aware of your unique contribution in this world and you're more and more able to share it 
and also more and more able to enjoy life to its fullest because you are the most fullest expression of yourself. So join me, join the conversation, and also tune in. Starting in March, we're still going to have a show in February and Wednesday, but starting March, it's going to be Thursday, 1st and 3rd, 9 a.m. Pacific time. Have you ever been in a situation that, let's say you're thinking about someone and five seconds later, this person calls you up? Or you have watched your dog all of a sudden going to the door and sitting there, maybe wagging the tail a minute before your spouse or your kids come home, as if the dog knew that they're about to arrive. There was no indication. There was just a knowingness. Or have you ever wanted something so much that for some reasons, the stars seem to align, the universe seemed to conspire, and it just happened? It was magic. Now, if these are phenomenons that you are curious about or have maybe experienced yourself and you wonder how, was it just happenstance? Did I just have the lucky socks on? Or is there something else happening? Stay tuned because we are talking with someone who wrote a fabulous book about a subject about subjects like telekinesis, like telepathy, like manifesting through consciousness, like past lives, do they exist and what happens after death and what is the role of consciousness? The notion of his work is really turning our old materialistic thinking upside down. And so the title of the book is very poignant, which is An End to Upside Down Thinking. And I'm talking about Mark Gober, and I just let him introduce himself. So, Mark, thank you so much for being on the show. It's so nice to have you. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Well, Mark, you are really, as we talked before the show started, someone who stumbled across this whole material of these phenomenons and consciousness, almost like by happenstance yourself. So tell us your story. What, how did you get interested in this, uh, this matter? Well, my background in, in my day job has nothing to do with consciousness. I work in the business financial field. So I'm a partner at a firm in Silicon Valley called Sherpa Technology Group. And we advise businesses on their intellectual property and business strategy, particularly around their patents. So I work with, a lot with technologies and how it applies to business. And prior to that, I worked in New York uh, at a large investment bank called UBS during the financial crisis, and I was doing investment banking there. Um, so on the surface, it doesn't seem like there's much of a connection with consciousness. And when I think back to my own personal interests, I have always asked big questions about existence and whether life has any meaning at all, and what are we doing here, what's the nature of the universe. Um, and even back in my undergraduate days, I studied at Princeton University, um, I thought about majoring in astrophysics because I wanted to understand the, the big questions in the universe. But I was on the tennis team there and later captain of the team. So my commitments were too much in that area. And I ended up just studying psychology. So again, I was kind of focused on understanding the mind, but not from 
the standpoint of existence, because I think there is an assumption that's so deeply embedded in much of our thinking, both scientific thinking and just everyday thinking, which is that the reason that we are all conscious, you and I and anyone else listening to this discussion, we are conscious, we have an awareness because of chemical activity that's occurring in our brain. And something complex in our skull is happening and that is what's spouting out the, the awareness and the consciousness that we all have. I didn't realize that there was any question about that topic until uh, late 2016 when I stumbled across podcasts, again, not intentionally looking for topics around consciousness. I was listening to health and business podcasts and heard someone, a woman named Laura Powers, who has her own podcast called Healing Powers. And she was talking about using energies for healing and communicating with entities that are not physical and communicating with the deceased and psychic abilities. And it just led me down a, a path really of just curiosity to see if there was any merit to these ideas. And the more I looked, the more I realized that there was actually a ton of credible evidence from places like Princeton University, where there was a lab for almost 30 years, from the U.S. government, uh, from the University of Virginia and beyond. And ultimately, massively shifted my own paradigm after about a year of just intensive research when I wasn't in, my, in the office for my day job. And then I decided to write a book about it. Now, let's be clear. <clears throat> Part of what you are really kind of dispelling is the old way of thinking that we are matter, our brain creates consciousness, and there is probably pretty much nothing beyond. And, and your research and what you found in your studies about this topic just puts a beautiful case together for the fact that it's the other way around. There is consciousness, and consciousness creates reality. Consciousness creates outcomes. Consciousness creates matter. And that we are somehow just having it again in the reverse. So my question is, why is this not something that, I mean, I read these uh, quotes from Nobel Prize winners and physicists and famous people that were absolutely buying into this notion. Yes, consciousness exists and we are all a part of it, which is part of, you know, that what you're describing. Why is it not more mainstream? What is the challenge? Why are we holding on to this Newtonian idea of cause and effect and we are not really turning it upside down? Well, I think like with any paradigm, it takes time for things to shift. And this is one example. We've seen many throughout history. One that I love to talk about is germ theory, where it used to be heretical to say that microscopic organisms like bacteria could make you sick or even kill you. I mean, when, before we had the microscope, that seemed like a ludicrous idea. Uh, right. So we have many examples throughout scientific history where there's an old entrenched way of thinking that is based on the common sense thinking of the time, and then some new way of thinking comes along. So I think that's where we are right now. But the difference is that we do have clear evidence. We do have the microscopes that show in these you know, ways of uh, these experiments that you're describing that these phenomenons exist. I mean, there are in your book uh, wonderful experiments about, for example, being able to predict the future, like with these uh, random uh, machines. And we're going to talk more about this. So why are these 
clear and very uh, logical experiments dismissed? Is there a fear, maybe? Yeah, I do think there there is a fear, and I think that there is a reluctance to look at much of the evidence that you just mentioned and the evidence that I provided in my book, uh, because it challenges the mainstream thinking. So in many cases, and, and I, I talk about this in the book, people will say, I've asked the debunkers to explain to me why the evidence is, is no good. And many of them said they haven't even looked at it. So it's hard for the paradigms to shift, especially in the education and academic communities where those are very influential communities in terms of societal thinking. And right. it's, it's, it's hard to break in. And it's even, it's, it's a taboo for some reason that I don't fully understand, maybe because I'm just new to the field, where if you are a, an academic and you discuss these ideas, it is, it's damaging to your career to mention them, mention them before you get tenure. And even if you do get tenure, it can be damaging. And like you said, uh, there's an example of a Nobel Prize winning physicist, Brian Josephson, who has said that he thinks telepathy is real and that quantum physics can help us explain it. He was uninvited from a scientific conference because he has interests in these topics. And the conference claimed to be a scientific one and didn't want people who, who even explored those things to attend. Now, after the break, we will talk more about, for example, telepathy. And we'll talk more about experiments that were done in a very scientific way that showed that something like this truly exists. And of course, other phenomena that you're describing in the book. And, and again, what I love about your book is that it has not just the ideas uh, presented, but it presents the evidence that underscore this is real we may just not be completely awake to that reality. So stay tuned. We will be right back. how to achieve wellness in all areas of your life? Hi, I'm Mary Jane Mack. Signs of wellness are a capacity to love and ability to nurture, a sense of purpose, a good sense of humor and plenty of fun in your life, a concern for others and a respect for the environment, a conscious commitment to personal excellence, a sense of balance and integrated lifestyle, and capacity to cope with whatever life presents. Well, people enjoy their lives and want them to last as long as possible. That's why the wellness mindset usually accompanies other constructive healthy lifestyle habits by adopting a wellness mindset and behaviors like eating well taking the right nutrition for the body exercising and saying affirmations are just a few things to structure a healthy system of values and beliefs i will be your wellness coach to help you achieve a wellness lifestyle Call us at 888-777-4232. That's 888-777-4232. And visit us at maryjanemack.com. Tune in to The Jen Royster Show, intuitive guidance to inspire your life. Each Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific and 11 a.m. Eastern on TransformationTalkRadio.com. This amazing show is an inspirational hour that will take you on an epic metaphysical journey to discover the spiritual approach to life's greatest challenges. Dr. Jen is an internationally known intuitive counselor, spiritual teacher, and energy healer. Call in for intuitive readings and visit JenRoyster.com for more information. Are you new to playing with the law of attraction or a seasoned pro looking for an easy and organized way to monitor your co-creation endeavors as you draw them from the immaterial planes into your physical reality? Then join me over at goldenotter.us. 
our bi-monthly new and full moon rituals, where we plant seeds of intention, then harvest the fruits of our desires as part of a dynamic community in the members-only Lunar Manifestations Forum. I'm Autumn Seibel, host of Golden Otter Radio, where the metaphysical meets the mainstream, and I can't wait to meet you. If you've ever had a broken heart, you know how painful that can be and how long it can sometimes take to heal it. I'm Megan Edge, author of The Heart's Journey, Healing Hearts, Oracle Cards, and Guidebook, published with Balboa Press and Hay House. In The Heart's Journey, I share with you my own heartbreak and how I healed it through the beautiful hearts that found me in nature. From taking photographs of these hearts for myself, I've created this beautiful toolkit, which includes the guidebook, which has my story, how to work with Oracle Cards as a healing tool, and the story of each of these hearts as they cross my path. I've also created a beautiful journal. There's a pen, a bookmark, and of course, the 42 Healing Hearts Oracle Cards. You can order the Hearts Journey, Healing Hearts Oracle Cards, and Guidebook through my website, meganedge.ca, through Balboa Press, Amazon, and many other places online or your local shops. I look forward to hearing about your heart's healing. Welcome back to Empowerment Radio. We are blowing our minds by thinking the end of upside down thinking with Mark Gober, who talks about just these phenomenons that we may have seen in the good old days on the Twilight Zone show, but they actually are real. And one of them is telekinesis. And uh, I want to ask you, Mark, tell us more about the experiments that were made and maybe the one that blew your mind the most. What something that you found like, wow, I didn't know that this really was possible. Mm. There are so many, but on the topic of telekinesis, or sometimes people call it psychokinesis, this is a phenomenon where the, the, the mental attitude or attention or intention that a person puts onto something can have a physical effect. So there's no physical touching, and yet the mind seems to affect the physical process, which doesn't make any sense under the conventional view that consciousness is just this byproduct of our brain and has no effect on the physical world. But if we flip things around and say that consciousness is the, the primary underlying field of the universe beyond all space and time, then it would actually make sense that if we shifted our own consciousness, then perhaps we can shift the material reality around us because consciousness is underlying the material reality. And that's what some of the studies suggest. So on this topic of, of psychokinesis. Um, and so what just, specifically did they do there in this study? So in this study, and it was... It's been run in many places, and one of them was Princeton University in the lab that I mentioned, run by the former dean of engineering, Dr. Robert John. So a very smart mm -hmm. guy was running this lab. And there are machines, they're, they're computer-generated machines called random number generators. So these are machines that generate zeros and ones in a totally random fashion. So when you look at the strings of zeros and ones that these machines typically produce, it ends up approaching 50% ones, 50% zeros, because it's totally random. In the experiments, what people are asked to do is the experimenter says, I want you to, to, with your mind, try to make the machine produce more ones than zeros. So like mentally willing it to do it. You're not touching the machine, you're just using your mind. And what they find in these experiments is that people are able to have a very, very subtle but highly statistically significant effect where there are more ones than zeros. 
And you have to use statistics and math to really see it. But it's, it's been shown over and over again in so many instances that it seems like the mind is having a subtle effect on a physical process without any physical contact. Now, wasn't there also a study where they had these random machines? What are they called? Random generators? Random number generator. Random number generators. And they had them all over in the world, just like taking away one, zero, one, zero. And then there were these big events that happened in the world where people were captured by maybe some kind of a disaster or something like this. And then the number shifted, that there was more because of that intense conscious energy of people. There were more ones or zeros. What was that about? This is known as the Global Consciousness Project, and it is, a, is, is run by uh, people who used to be at Princeton. So Dr. Robert, Roger Nelson is, is running it right now, and they're still looking at the data. And they're looking at what happens to these machines during uh, big events. So the way that it's, it's structured is that machines are set up all over the world. And most people don't even know that they're there. So whereas in this experiments I mentioned initially, people know there's a machine and they're trying to mentally influence it. In these cases, the machines are just set up, like you said, generating zeros and ones in a random fashion. And the experimenters look to see what happens to the machines around the world when there's a major event. So like 9-11 or Princess Diana's death some event where they would think that many people are mentally focused on that thing, or there's an emotional elevation in some way. And what they find for many of these events is that the machines around the world behave non-randomly, meaning there are slightly more ones than zeros if we look at the statistics to compare the, the behavior of the machines during those events versus during a normal time. And that is something that has been repeatedly shown in those, uh, you know, events of global interest, that something is shifting, which is just a phenomenon in itself. Now, when it comes to energy, you just mentioned before, energy can also affect matter. In your book, there is also a section on energy healing. And one of the experiments was about the Petri dish, where uh, these the cells were radiated and uh, a person was using energy healing techniques on uh, 50% of the Petri dishes. And, and what were the outcomes there? Well, when, when the energy healers put their, their, their mental energy or, or whatever they do on the Petri dishes, um, the, the survival rates were, were higher, were stronger, um, even though the cells were being radiated, which is suggesting that somehow the, the mental intention that is being put forth by the, the healer is having an effect on a biological process. So the way I, I structured this chapter and really the book in general is to say, look, we have experiments from a number of different credible people. And the, the, the experiment with the energy healer was, is someone who passed away recently, but a credible scientist um, at UC Irvine College. And he was uh, advisor to many prominent people like Barack Obama. And he was running studies on energy healing. So I think the power to me is in the cumulative effect of all of these studies together where it gets to the point, and we're just talking about psychokinesis. This is one chapter where for yeah. me, as just a logical person. I have a hard time shooting all of them down. And if any one of these things is real, then we can explain it very well by this idea that consciousness is the primary structure or, or reality that we're in. And therefore, if that's true, then I think it becomes more probable that many of these things are real. Now, what you say when you when you heard about these uh, 
these phenomenons like energy healing and uh, also telekinesis, that something inside of you also made you wonder, so how can I use this? Do I have the ability as well to use my mind and my energy to change something? And would you say in general, we all have more of that potential than we really give ourselves credit or are told that we have? The way I think about the human in general now is that we all have these abilities and they're not really powers. We call them powers because in modern society, they're not supported as being real. So they seem like supernatural. But if we view the brain, again, not as the producer of consciousness, but rather being more like an antenna receiver, or I think a more precise metaphor is to call the brain a filtering mechanism where consciousness exists well beyond the body, non-locally to the body, and the brain actually limits what we perceive. So that applies to anyone, any, any being with a brain, any, any living being is ha has that filtering mechanism in their brain, it's, and it's a matter of unlocking it and learning how to work with it. So I do think that we all have the abilities, and sometimes they're very subtle, like with the random number generator machines. It's a very small effect that you need mathematics to detect and sometimes the effects are bigger. So for me, I think, yeah, there was a lot of curiosity as to, as to how I might be able to use these things. But then the next step came very quickly, which is, well, what is the meaning of life? And th those are things that we can get into. And how, how do these powers fit in? So does it really matter if I can affect a, a machine or affect uh, a biological system with my mind? What is the broader purpose of doing something like that? Very good question. Now, if you have questions for Mark, Call 1-800-930-2819. That's again, 1-800-930-2819. Or you can also enter a question into the chat box of Transformation Talk Radio. Well, these are you know, very important and mind-blowing considerations that uh, you, know, you can actually, just by unfiltering your brain, tap into that consciousness. Now, what I loved also about uh, one chapter in the book was how it described consciousness with the stream and the whirlpool. And uh, this was a metaphor that made sense because I think uh, some of the listeners who don't really know this matter think, okay, here are some people talking about something and they're obviously on crack or taking psychedelics or something like this because I have no idea what they're talking about. So talk about this uh, this uh, metaphor with the stream and the and, and the and the whirlpools, because I feel like it's something very tangible we can really see us being a part of. This is a, a metaphor that I borrowed from Dr. Bernardo Castrop, who's a philosopher who also um, thinks that consciousness is the primary structure of, of reality. And he says in his book, which is called, by the way, "Why Materialism Is Baloney." Materialism <laughs> is the idea that that the brain and matter create consciousness. So he's very much in this camp of consciousness first. But he says, imagine that all of reality is like a stream of water, where water represents consciousness. And each of us is like a whirlpool within that stream, meaning we have delineations that separate us within the stream, but we're all fundamentally made of water. We're all interconnected in the same stream of consciousness. So we have an individuated experience because we're in a, a whirlpool, so to speak, but we're not actually separate. And that consciousness kind of flows all over the place. So it would be possible in theory for the water from one whirlpool to get into the water of another whirlpool if there was kind of an opening in either one. And that would be like a telepathic or a psychic ability where consciousness from one enters the consciousness of another. So this is just all to say that 
this model where consciousness is primary predicts that psychic abilities would be real. It wouldn't say that those things are paranormal. It would say, yeah, we would expect that. So that's one important area. And the other important area is if the whirlpool dissolves and stops being a whirlpool, the water doesn't leave the stream. So that's sort of like when the body dies, the consciousness simply transitions into a new form. Now, are these filters that we are talking about, the filters that prevent the, the connection to the consciousness or the awareness of the consciousness, could we say that these are kind of the, the spinning of the whirlpool, meaning like the faster it spins, the more it pushes the consciousness out? And uh, that there is, you know, the slower it is, the more open it is to let the consciousness in. That's a good analogy. The way I like to think about that compared to our brain and our mind is that if we're thinking and overthinking and are kind of clouded by thoughts and emotions, then we might be less receptive to intuition or these types of psychic abilities. And what we see in many cases, for example, remote viewing, which is the ability that I talk about in the book, chapter four, where people can perceive something that's very far away, uh, even though they're not seeing it with their eyes, they describe going into a kind of a meditative trance when they do this. Many psychics, people that communicate with the deceased or claim to have intuitive abilities, they typically go into a meditative trance. So there's this common thread where a slowing down of the mind seems to allow uh, like our antenna to more clearly pick up the signal. Now, I can absolutely relate to this because sometimes when I do work with clients and I say something in one of our deeper parts of the session, they say that it's exactly what I just thought. So there is certainly a, an exchange of consciousness that, I mean, word by word, that kind of makes me always like, you know, wow, what happens here? What kind of exchange? But I think what you are describing in regards to the consciousness being more open in a, a meditative, like an alpha state, is certainly something that, uh, you know, could explain what happens. Now, much more to talk about, especially also telepathy, as you just uh, mentioned, uh, there is a chapter on animals, which I just love because I think they may be more naturally able to tune in than we have been. And then the big I question, what's the meaning of life? What happens afterwards? Where do we go? Stay tuned. We will address it all. And if you have a question again, 800-930-2819. Tired of being tired? Hi, I'm Mary Jane Mack. Did you know the adrenal glands, the workhorse of the body? They are the means by which you position yourself in life for whatever comes your way. Tiny but mighty, producing hormones the body uses to promote energy and vitality. These adrenals determine how you respond to stress and when depleted, the body loses its ability to function powerfully when we need it most. The much needed adrenaline or epinephrine is not available for emergency situations. Cortisone and cortisol, the longer-acting anti-stress adrenal hormones, can also become depleted due to the pace of our everyday lives. We overwork and undernutrition our most powerful ally that helps us to live the lives we desire. We are able to determine the optimum function of the adrenals and put your system back in balance. Contact us today to feel powerfully energized at 888-777-4232 or visit us at maryjanemack.com. Are you ready to create a life you'll really love? Then you'll want to tune in to the hit show Life Design Radio from adversity to awesome with Susan DiLorenzo. 
live each month on TransformationTalkRadio.com. No matter where you are in your adversity story, Life Design Radio has got you covered. Get ready to feel inspired, enlightened, and motivated. For more information about working with Susan, visit SusanDiLorenzo.com. Ignite your inner magic on Grow Your Soul Radio with Jane Matanga. Tune in each month on Transformation Talk Radio as host Jane Matanga explores how to overcome your fears to help you gain the inspiration you need to awaken your path to joy. Learn the way to life mastery and the enlightened path with Grow Your Soul Radio. For more information on Jane Matanga and her work, visit enlightened-path.com. To find answers to life's questions, you need to look within yourself. Dr. Glenna Rice brings your questionable conversations on Transformation Talk Radio each month. Tune in each month for insight into how you can live up to your full potential. Dr. Glenna is a physical therapist, certified access consciousness, and access body class facilitator. How does it get any better than this? For more information on Dr. Glenna Rice and her work, visit GlennaRice.com. What is a brilliant culture and how do we create them? Why are they important? Claudette Rowley has created a breakthrough five-step process to help you align your culture with your business strategy for exceptional results. Looking for a culture that drives organizational excellence? Listen to Cultural Brilliance Radio, the second and fourth Friday of each month at 10 a.m. Pacific and 1 p.m. Eastern on Transformation Talk Radio. To learn more or work with Claudette, visit culturalbrilliance.com. Wow, what a great conversation. I have to say, sometimes, you know, when you have these uh, talks and conversations with someone and something really gets stirred up, I mean, at least for me, it's like I get shivers. And I definitely have some shivers here just talking about uh, what Mark is uh, sharing, the research, and, you know, things that maybe you and I have believed in, but it's so nice and so refreshing to also see like that, there is science catching up and actually doing a great job to also maybe build the bridge so that this becomes more the new normal to know consciousness exists outside of the body and consciousness is real and something that quantum physics certainly has talked about that we can all more and more learn from and tap into. Now, Mark, you also mentioned about quantum physics and some experience uh, experiments that were done that further uh, underscore what you are writing. Can you give us one or two experiments of quantum physics that you would say like, yeah, that's exactly the, the story of consciousness that I'm, I'm talking about here? Well, I think there are two examples that are really important for any, any person to understand. And they're so counterintuitive and they're happening at really small scales of reality. So we don't think about them. We don't think they could be possible. And yet they're being shown to be true over and over again. And one is known as entanglement or quantum entanglement. This is where you have a physical particle in one place and then another one in another place, just to oversimplify it. When you affect one, the other one that's far away is affected at the same exact instant in mm. a correlated way. So it's suggesting that there's some kind of hidden connect connectedness that our eyes do not see. So this is something that people like Albert Einstein looked at. He called it spooky action at a distance. And mm. he tried to disprove it because he thought that the speed of light was the fastest anything could travel. 
And yet here we have two things that are reacting at the same exact instant. So he tried to disprove it. He ended up actually proving that it's true and now it is generally accepted. So people have surmised like Dr. Dean Radin, he wrote a book called Entangled Minds. So if we're entangled as part of the stream, then maybe these telepathic incidences or um, where one person is in danger and another person seems to know it who's far away, there are many cases of that where maybe entanglement at the quantum level is in effect. So, and why is that more with twins? Seemed like twins had also some kind of a more or greater connectiveness in regards to these telepathic abilities. It's something that seems to ha occur where emotional closeness heightens the effect that we see with telepathy. So the telepathy studies that I discuss in the book, and maybe I can start by giving the example of the classic study, which is where an everyday person has a, a subtle telepathic effect. I think what you're alluding to is that when, when you have an emotional closeness, whether it's a mother, child, or twins, or identical twins even, the effect is even stronger. So it's right. kind of a spectrum, which is, I think, important for people to understand. Something I certainly didn't understand when I got into this, which is that there, it, I think there's a tendency to think about this in a binary sense of the person is psychic, as in they're 100% psychic, or they're right. not. Right. The effects, however, are not like that. It's beyond chance effects, where it's just statistical where it's like if we expected things to, to go according to chance in the study that I'll just, I'll about, I'm about to explain, we would get 25%, and yet we get 32%. Right, so, right. But it's so not a light switch that it's all or nothing. It's just an increase of likelihood or connectedness. It's an increase, and it's, it's an increase beyond what our modern science would predict. So yes. what I'm arguing is that rather than sweeping these anomalies under the rug, maybe we should accept them as being real, not call them anomalies, and instead shift our framework of reality to be able to account for them. Now, we had a caller, and Carter, I couldn't really read exactly what the question was. Can you tell us? Yeah, uh, Helena had a question. How do we use our consciousness to lose weight? <laughs> That's an excellent question. I'm sure it... <laughs> It just stuns you for a second, Mark. So what's, what's your answer? Is there any well, studies about that? It's really funny that Helena asked that because I was just listening to a tape by Dr. David Hawkins, who I reference in the book. And he's someone who has reached very high states of consciousness. Uh, he passed away a few years ago, but he, he reached states that are similar to what people talk about in the near-death experience. Or sometimes people who are meditators like this kind of totally unlock their filter and they experience this broader reality that Typically, it might take a psychedelic to achieve, but he achieved it naturally. But he was also a psychiatrist. And one of his tapes talks about weight loss as it applies to these principles. So for him, it's about the concept of letting go of the cravingness of, of eating. So it's, it's, it's shifting the, the consciousness that we have towards eating and kind of not being attached to needing the food, but rather treating it as just a part of life rather than just being totally attached to the outcome. The other more specific uh, thing that he recommends, which may or may not be attached to consciousness, is he says to always eat when you're not hungry. <laughs> That's an interesting one. How does that work? So you're always full? Yes. He claims that people tend to overeat because they have this sense of hunger and then it heightens the, the cravingness uh, that we experience. And part of the cravingness that we experience is part of being a consciousness in a body. We get kind of overtaken by our biological urges. And when we connect to the broader reality of being a consciousness first and foremost, 
we we identify less with the body and then are less subject to the cravings. Now, that brings up a question about the possibilities of this, let's say, the stream of consciousness, like in the whirlpool analogy. Now, in this stream, isn't there like a, an infinite, eternal amount of possibilities included in that stream? And uh, in some ways, similar to quantum physics, the experiment of what you are observing, that's what you're seeing. Is it possible that when you want to lose weight, you see yourself always as someone who needs to lose weight or someone who has a problem with weight? And if you are unlocking the filter and letting go, like Hawkins uh, suggests, that you are actually maybe having access to another way of looking at yourself or another way of identifying yourself, which is having no issue, just completely being perfectly fine with who you are and how you look. And I mean, is that something that also this unlocking? allows you to do just to completely shift your thinking about everything, including yourself. That's a great point. I absolutely think that's true. And it's a letting go of basically old programming that might come from childhood or from who knows where, epigenetics, past lives. There right. are many reasons that we might have a program to have a perception in a certain, from a certain perspective. And when we examine that perspective, from an objective point of view, we might say, wow, that's really just an assumption I have about myself or about reality. So when we break it and unlock the filter and kind of open ourselves up to broader possibilities, maybe we let go of some of those old patterns. Now, when you, uh, you know, talk about the consciousness, you also talked before about that, well, once the whirlpool is done, it goes back into the stream, meaning when the body is done, we are reuniting with that consciousness in unfiltered ways. What evidence is there for that? Well, I think the, the best evidence in terms of the reuniting comes from the near-death experience. And these are instances where a person is in extreme physiological trauma, such as cardiac arrest in the most extreme cases. So these are people that are clinically dead. Blood stops flowing to their brain. And by all measurable standards, the brain is off. And yet they're having extremely lucid Uh, thought processes and logical thought processes, and they experience unconditional love. And basically, they're, they're kind of talking about another dimension. Um, sometimes they're hovering over their bodies and they see things in the room, and which are later shown to be accurate, meaning it's not a hallucination because what they see from above their body is, is shown to be true. So we might be able to get a glimpse of this unfiltered reality, maybe outside of the stream through the near-death experience, if we take that as kind of a, a literal description of what happens when we do die. But, you know, the doubters are saying these are just uh, brain chemistry changes. Your brain is firing something to alleviate the pain. And, and you had a good argument against that, which was that the brain was actually not functioning at all at that time. Right, right. It's hard to make that argument if there's no brain on, on which those chemicals can act. And that's what occurs in many of these instances. And another thing is that sometimes we'll see an overlap in symptoms. So you can say, oh, well, when you have oxygen deprivation, we see X, Y, and Z. And yet in the near-death experience, we see X, Y, and Z. And maybe that's true, but there are other things in the near-death experience that are not accounted for by these physiological explanations, right. such as it's known as the life review that people report, where they experience their whole life in a flash. Again, while they're clinically dead, they, they re-experience events from their life and they're judging themselves for how they acted. And in some cases, they actually take on the eyes and the, the body of the people that they affected. So they experience or re-experience the event through the eyes of, of the other people. 
And that is something that would make a lot of sense if we are all part of the same consciousness and would not make much sense at all from the conventional view. So that makes sense in regards to, yes, this is what could happen to be able to tap into other people's consciousness. But it almost could be then construed as, well, there is a final judgment and you have your live review and you will be either weighed as too heavy or too light. I mean, is consciousness judgmental? The way it is reported is that the individual is judging him or herself the whole time. So it's not a third-party judgment. Right. The way I look at reality is, is kind of we're all interconnected as part of the same stream, like the Kastrup analogy, or as Erwin Schrodinger, the, the famous Nobel Prize winning physicist, he says, in truth, there is only one mind. So in a sense, the individual is judging him or herself, but that individual is part of the greater whole. So it's like a self-judgment and it's almost, it resembles like school in a way, as an analogy. That's the way people kind of describe it when they come back is that we seem to be here learning how to interact with one another. And then we see how we did during the life review to, to oversimplify things. Right. So did you have a, a spiritual or some religious upbringing or did you just uh, now have almost developed a new sense of spirituality through your work on consciousness? I've developed a new sense. My perspective was that life had no meaning. I was very strict about that because I thought that consciousness arose from the brain. So I thought the awareness that I have right now was solely due to my biology. And so when my biology stops functioning, when the body dies, then that implies the consciousness goes away. So there's no memories, there's no thinking, no emotions. And if you take that out even further, it's really hard, I think, to come up with meaning in life beyond just rationalizing to make oneself feel better. And I didn't want to rationalize. So I really struggled with meaning. And I just thought that it was all random and things would happen in life that seemed like they were good or bad. But in the end, it didn't matter because we're all going to die. And it sounds horrible, but I think that's, that is what the materialist view that science is promoting implies. Without so what question. drove you then even in life? I mean, you were always very busy and competitive. And if nothing really has a meaning, what get you go? What got you going? Well, I struggled with it because I, I acknowledged that, that, I, was, that I, I felt an urge to do things and I felt a desire to do things. And then I would say, wait, Mark, why do you care? So I think over time, if it had continued, it probably would have been a greater and greater struggle. I think it became more and more of a struggle over time. But it was kind of just going on instinct and saying, well, Maybe there are things that I don't know, and I, I don't know any differently, so I'm just going to do this, but maybe it will never matter in the end. So what's your view now? My view now is that the body seems to be like a temporary stop for consciousness. It's like a, a, a vehicle of experience. So I, I do think that there is some meaning, at least in the sense that consciousness seems to continue beyond bodily functioning. So that alone is more meaning than what I thought before. But I think if we go to the life review, that's a really powerful idea if it's a real thing and not just a hallucination where people are re-experiencing events through the lenses of other people. And actually, in some cases, you can have an indirect experience where there was a case of someone who, who blew up uh, people in, in Vietnam and in his life review experienced the pain of one of the mothers of someone that he blew up. Mm. So it's this interconnectivity that we seem to be a part of. And we, it's, it's almost a test, I'm not sure, of how we can interact with ourselves, even though we are veiled and, and feel like we're separate from one another. Now, you also mentioned that there is evidence for past lives. 
that means like you would basically take pieces of this stream of consciousness from other lifetimes with you into this lifetime and then maybe make up for it or have another go around or how is that explained? Well, I would have just said that reincarnation doesn't make any sense before, <laughs> I, before I started my research. Because again, if you think consciousness is confined to our brain, then it doesn't make sense. How could it be recycled? But if we're part of this stream, then it's like one whirlpool dissolves into the broader stream and then is recycled into a new whirlpool. And maybe it has some water from another whirlpool and some from one from another, and it's a combination, but they're, you know, it's a recycling almost. There is, in fact, evidence for it, and I think it's pretty strong. It comes from the University of Virginia, over 50 years of research at their Division of Perceptual Studies at the medical school. So this is a credible, credible institution with uh, people like Dr. Jim Tucker and Dr. Ian Stevenson, who have examined over 2,500 cases of children who are usually between the ages of two and five in that neighborhood, um, who are spontaneously talking about a life that is not theirs in such vivid detail that in some cases, the researchers can find medical records or historical records that match the very specific person that the child is describing. I mean, Brian Weiss' work about uh, past life regression certainly also something that is uh, fascinating in this regard. And I do work with clients also on past lives, whether it's a concept or not, but it's something that really is to them very real, very vivid, and makes a lot of sense. And it is also when you resolve something from that old consciousness as often a ripple effect into this life. So it's a, it's a very fascinating and in some ways untapped subject. But the bigger question that I have is, if there is consciousness with all these wonderful, you know, recycling abilities and so on, what's the purpose of consciousness? What is it for? Yeah, I think when we get into questions like that, which are really why questions, why does consciousness exist at all? It, it is perhaps difficult or impossible for the human mind in our, with all of our limitations to come up with an answer that is, is comprehensible. So the, the best answer that I can give after all the research I've done is that it seems to be that consciousness simply exists beyond all space and time without any primary cause. It simply is. And it seems like one of the properties of consciousness, in addition to things like unconditional love that people experience when the filters unlock, I think that's part of it. But it seems like consciousness has a property of evolution where it's like a constant growth. Why? I, I have no idea. But it's something that comes up over and over again where it makes me think that it's just an innate property. Well, I often have thought that maybe our experiences, and again, there is no scientific evidence for this, but the way you're describing it, our experiences may feed the consciousness, you know, that we are actually fueling through these bodily experiences and everything that we are later on, once we're leaving this body, sharing with consciousness, we are fueling this stream with new information, with new possibilities, with new insights. Now, again, is this consciousness the equivalent of God? What is this consciousness beginning and end? We certainly don't know, but in your book, what really made me dizzy was your idea about the I. And I know we don't have a lot of time left, but let's our mind spin a little bit around the I. What is the okay. I? Okay, so when I say I, like I am speaking to you, what is that I? That's, that's what I call consciousness. And again, the old paradigm, what I call the old paradigm, it's the mainstream paradigm of materialism, 
that sense of identity, that sense of I is just from brain activity. But I spend a whole book showing evidence suggesting that it's not from brain activity, that consciousness is in fact primary. And that makes us re-examine our own identity. When I say that I am speaking to you, what is that I? It's not something physical. I can't touch it, right? So what is it? And I go through an exercise that was inspired by Rupert Spira, who is, a, a, I think, an incredible philosopher of our time, who really does some deep introspective exercises on examining that I, because it's so, it, it experiences everything in our life. It's not physical, and yet it is always there. So it is, it's ever-present. That's one property of this I that we have. It is all, you can't think of an instance where it wasn't there. It was always, it's always there. So and it's, this is the exercise with a tree? Uh, no, this is a different one. This is getting to what is I. So one of the one of the properties, and then therefore, what are we? What's our identity? Um, so it is ever present in our own experience. It is also uh, without qualification. In other words, if I say I am Mark, the I is unaffected by M Mark, if you know what I mean. Or mm-hmm. I see the tree, I see the couch, I see the book. I feel the sensation. There's always the I, and then there's this experience that's happening around it. Right. Okay? So it is, it is basically unqualified or unlimited. We can't put any limitation on consciousness or on, or on I. So I is, we've established that it is unlimited, that it is ever-present. It's also self-aware. I'm aware of myself. It, it is is this kind of meta thing where it is aware of its own existence. So consciousness is unlimited, self-aware, and ever-present. And it also has this kind of infinite quality. In other words, we can't pin it down its location. Like it feels like it's in our head, but if you close your eyes and really think about where your consciousness is, there's no boundary that you can put on it. It's this amorphous thing that is not finite. So in that sense, we could call it infinite without border. So now we've established, just based on our own introspection, that consciousness or I, our own identity, is unlimited, self-aware, ever-present, and infinite. Now, if we look at what religions have said about God throughout the ages, they would say an infinite, ever-present, et cetera, self-aware being is God. Right. So now we look at the mystical traditions that have all throughout the ages, whether it's the Eastern traditions or Kabbalah and Judaism, Gnosticism and Christianity, Sufism and Islam, they get, it's a very non-dual perspective that that which I am, that which experiences the body, I, is the, the broader reality. So um, Rumi, the Sufi mystic, he said something along the lines of, I searched for God and I only found myself. I searched for myself and I found God. Well, and I think that's just a wonderful meditation because it also dispels everything about our false identities whether it's someone feeling they are overweight, someone feeling they are not smart enough, not good enough, not lovable enough. These are the identities that we are holding on to, which are exactly the blocks that prevent us from connecting to that stream of consciousness you're talking about. And I think one way of dispelling it could be just a meditation on that I and be more in touch with the infinite and uh, unlimited uh, abilities or qualities of that I. So I really love that you shared this and I invite everyone to to do that. Now, is there, unfortunately, we're already out of time. So time apparently is sped up, especially with that uh, subject, which is so fascinating. And I definitely want to have you back on the show, but 
talk about uh, something that you feel like you would want to share with people to take this information and maybe make a part of it in their life, make it a part of them. Well, I think what you just said is really, really critical. And it might be the most important thing that someone can do. From my own personal anecdotal experience and also from many friends and family members that have kind of been along the ride with me, it is a powerful thing to re-identify oneself. Mm. There's such a tendency based on what our eyes show us and what society says to identify with the body. I am my body. My body has a consciousness. That is one sense of identity. But if we are the consciousness that experiences the body, it's almost like awakening something that's always been there inside of us. And with that re-identification, I think things just happen anecdotally that I cannot explain. So no. for your listeners who are thinking about practical issues like anxiety, worry, weight we loss. We have to go. I just get a signal. We have to go. But okay. well, sorry for that. But you buy the book, Mark Gober, The End of Upside Down Thinking. It's absolutely mind-boggling, fascinating. Thank you so much, Mark. And come back to the show for sure. Thank you so much for having me. This was it. Empowerment Radio wrap-up. We'll talk again in a few weeks. Thank you for tuning in and thank you for listening. Take care. Bye. You've been listening to Empowerment Radio with Dr. Friedemann Schaub. Join Dr. Friedemann the first and third Wednesday each month at 11 a.m. Pacific as he addresses some of the most prevailing challenges of our daily lives. Discover how you can use the power of your mind to overcome stress, anxiety, and overwhelm and create a solid foundation of confidence and self-esteem. Learn cutting-edge tools so that you can approach every day with great ease, joy, and purpose. To learn more about what Dr. Schaub can do for you, visit the fearandanxietysolution.com.